This week has, the last couple weeks for me personally, have been crazy. Uh, we, were, we were on fall break, um, and just with work and our life, and we're potty training a three-year-old who's pooping all over the floor, and I mean, that sounds funny, but it's awful, actually. Uh, and so it's just been, it's been, a, been a week, and so praise God. For me, I'm literally praising God that I'm here um, and that we are here together and we've made it. And so we, I personally need to just go to the Lord and, and, and relieve like, my stress, my reality, and I hope you do too. So let's take a minute. Let's take a breath. Breathe out, breathe in, and, and then I'll open us with some prayer. God, the silence is really good for us. It helps us stop, turn off our, our minds to the things that are going on outside, and let us just have a moment here uh, and just receive you and learn from you and, and be with you and have an encounter with you. Speak through me, speak through these words, and let them, let, let them fall um, pleasantly. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 27, we're going to continue our series in Seeking God in the Psalms. We're in Psalm 27, it's on page 484 in this red Bible, Burgundy Bible that's around you. So turn there with me, 484 on this page, or in this, this Bible, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord, and this is going to be the verse we're going to spend most of the time in today, verse 4. I have asked one thing from the Lord amidst all of this. It is what I desire, and that's to dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, doing what? Gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. For he will conceal me in shelter in the day of, of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be held high. Above my enemies around me, I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my, hear my voice. When I call, be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me because of my adversaries. Show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witness rise, witnesses rise against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, that is a good word. And uh, we're going to be talking about God's beauty today. Uh, Gazing on, on the beauty of God, that's what we're going to be centered around. Um, anyone in here 
familiar with the Enneagram? If you are, raise your hand. Okay, that's valid. I don't know, 50, 60 plus percent. If you're not, um, you've kind of missed the last 10 years or so um, because it's like this thing that everybody talks about. I am not going to preach on the Enneagram today. We talk a lot about the Enneagram. I know some of you guys are rolling your eyes already like, oh gosh, she's starting with the Enneagram. Great. Um, but I do want to talk about it a little bit. It is a helpful tool uh, for us to, to, to assess. Um, there's, there's these nine personality uh, traits or, or whatever you want to call them that you, you get bucketed into. And if you're like me, you hate being bucketed into anything. So you're like, you boycott the Enneagram. Um, but that's just me personally. But it is good to understand, hey, what, what kind of, who, how do I operate and how do I relate? Right? So that, it is a helpful tool. I want to talk about three, I'm not going to talk about all of them. I want to talk about three quick ones because it helps set up today. And I think if I were to go around the room, I think most of us in this room for some reason, I don't know why that is, probably fall in one of these three buckets. First, I'm going to talk about the three on the Enneagram. The admirable achiever. Threes are people who measure themselves by external achievements and the roles that they play. They may be goal-oriented and accomplished, or they can, be, they can embellish the truth, be overly competitive, and focused only on their own accomplishments. It's the, like the good and the shadow side, if you're familiar. The five. Got a lot of fives in here, I'm sure. The five is a person who pulls, it's the analytical investigator. It's the person who pulls back from the world and others to observe and, and prefers to live in their mind. They may be wise, they may be a visionary, knowledgeable, or abstract, stingy, eccentric, and intellectually arrogant. If you're five, sorry about that. The introspective individualist is the four. Brandon mentioned this last week. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the four. I think the four is what we all need. It's in this sermon series particularly. It says they are primarily in their imagination and their feelings. They may be artistic, sensitive, creative, articulate, and inspiring, or moody. If you know four, I've met some moody ones. Elitist and self-absorbed. I think regardless of what type you are, we all need to adopt a little bit of four. Brandon mentioned this last week in, in his sermon. In this series, we are going after some feelings, some emotions that, that result in an encounter, from an encounter, right? So that's what we're going after. And truth be told, I'm jealous of the four. I'm jealous because their ability to connect the truth of God to their feelings and emotions just seems like it's simpler to them. It comes a little bit more natural. They know how to define their emotions and use them to stir affection. If you ask a three about emotions, they're going to say this. How can we put that on a weekly scorecard and make sure we can accomplish that emotion this week? You can laugh at that. It's kind of funny. I know some threes very acutely in this room, and I'm looking at a couple of them, and I guarantee you they do that. Number, uh, some fives. A five is going to say, how can you truly assess emotions? In this world, this data-driven world, how is it definable? How is it real? This was on display this week, um, and I, don't, I hope I don't offend anybody because this five is in the room. He, he may not even know he's a five, but he's a five. And uh, in RMC, we were talking about this, and he posed a really brilliant question that I think a lot of us are going to ask in this series. It's kind of a dilemma. He said, how do you know that your feelings towards God during an encounter are real? 
and not just a sensation? How do you know he is actually there? That's a classic question from the five. Then there was a four in the room. And the four answering this, she was in the earlier service. She said, something along these lines, I don't have it perfect. She said, well, I experience him most often when I'm in a creative environment. And once in that space, my imagination is engaged. I can see his beautiful attributes more clearly. He becomes very real in that moment. And you should have seen, <laughs> this five may not even have known it, you should have seen him after she said that. He was like, what? What? <laughs> he was concerned about ensuring that it wasn't sensational, but her experience is often very sensational, right? And so there was, there's this big disconnect. It, it, was, it was absolutely hilarious, but... The goal of this series is to take on some four. Why? So that you can make your encounters with God and his characteristics three things. These are not my points today, but they are alliteration because I love it. You want the encounter to be more real, more recognizable, and more regular. Real, recognizable, and more regular. That's what we're going after. Today's on the gazing on the beauty of God, and I think this is really important for us because if we don't understand God's beauty and continuously gaze on it, we will not be satisfied in our relationship with him. If we do not understand God's beauty and gaze on it continuously, we will not be satisfied in our relationship with him. As Christians, we want to be satisfied in our relationship with God, right? That's, that's normal. We want to encounter him in such a way, such a real way that when we walk about uh, our life, and, and, and we talk about him, our eyes swell with tears. When we memorize his scripture, it doesn't become just like a discipline, but it's something that overwhelms our affections. That when we practice solitude, the silence with him is like a slow dance that stops the world around you. That's what we want. So I'm going to give you three questions. I'm going to answer three questions today. One, what is beauty? Right, just tangible. Let's figure out what beauty is. Particularly, we're going to learn more about God's beauty. How do we find it? And then where do we find it? So what is it? How do we find it? And where do we find it? All right, back in Psalm 27, we're, we're answering what is it. Um, we first have to start uh, with, with, with David here. He, we see a couple things in the text. Uh, in verse 8, he says that my heart wants to seek your face my heart wants to seek your face. And the Hebrew word for face all throughout the Bible is presence. He says, my heart needs your presence. It longs to be in your presence because I know that you will care for me as he goes on to say. In verse 10, Lord, I know that you will not abandon me even if my mother and father do. My heart longs to be with you, not just to believe you, believe in you, but to experience you. I want to be in your presence, but he's saying something specific here about once he's in his presence, what is he actually seeking? His beauty. That, in verse 4, he says his beauty. He wants to encounter his beauty. Okay, so let's learn about beauty. The Hebrew word for beauty in verse 4, uh, and, there's a, and I'll talk about a couple other uh, um, places that you'll see beauty in, in Scripture and, uh, and it means something different, but here the Hebrew word is pleasure in perception. Where perception literally means to become aware of something through what? Through the senses. 
our physical experience. So what David is saying is that I want to physically sense your beauty and I want to find pleasure in it. A great illustration to kind of uh, explain this is uh, I was in Michigan several weeks back and I've gotten into cycling and I ride with a bunch of guys who are super intense about cycling. I'm not super intense about cycling so that results in me not being very good at cycling um, comparatively and uh, so I often find myself in these really really ridiculous situations where I'm miserable and everybody else is happy about being miserable. Um, <laughs> I'm not really sure, but we were up in Michigan. Michigan's a beautiful place. Northern Michigan is a beautiful, beautiful place, but it's also very, very hilly. Um, and so we were riding, uh, we were doing the 75-mile route, which I don't recommend, um, through the hills of Michigan. And uh, we, we were on our, way, on our way to Sleeping Bear Dunes. Have you guys ever been to Sleeping Bear Dunes? Okay, there's a lot of shaking the heads. I had never been there. It's amazing. Like, so we're on our way to Sleeping Bear Dunes. On the way to Sleeping Bear Dunes, like this 10-mile uh, incline, gradual and yet very steep at certain parts. And, uh, and, and off to the right was, was a couple different bays that we were riding across, and the sky was crystal blue. That It looked like Caribbean water. It was an amazing day. And I could perceive, I could perceive that the beauty was over there, but all I could feel was the pain in my legs. Literally, I was trekking along, and I, I, all I could feel was pain. I, I could perceive that it was there, but I couldn't acknowledge what was there. I felt pain in my legs and, and, and being completely out of breath, and uh, that's what I was experiencing in that very moment. But once we got to the top, and I made it to the top. First of all, that was a huge accomplishment for me, because there's this one point I was like, I'm done. I'm walking. Um, but I made it to the top on the bike, and then there was a different reason I was out of breath. When I got to the top, first time being in Sleeping Bear Dunes, and I was out of breath because it was breathless. The beauty took the breath out. It was amazing. And that was, okay, I, could, I, I was perceiving that the beauty was there, but once I actually experienced the beauty, it was, it, it was pleasurable. It brought satisfaction. There are a couple other uses of beauty in Scripture that, that, that I mentioned that I want to point out, and it helps really, it helps really complete my definition for me, the definition for me for beauty. Uh, first, Isaiah 33, 17 says, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. The Hebrew word here is excellence. Your eyes will see the king in his excellence. Psalm 50, verse 2, from Zion, the perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. The word here, beauty here means attractive, or desire. And then in Psalm 27, we, it means satisfying, delight, to pleasure in. And I think that progression, those three together, really, really helped me. You've got excellence. You can identify, when you, see, when you think about beauty in general, um, not necessarily God's beauty, but beauty in general out in the world, what do you do? Well, first of all, you, you acknowledge that it's excellent, right? There's a lot of excellent things. Some of you may not find certain excellent things beauty, beautiful as others do, but everybody's like, okay, it's first, first excellent, the second thing is it's very, very attractive, right? It's desirable. You want more of it. You want to see more of it. And then lastly, it provides satisfaction. It's pleasurable, right? It's doing something to you, and that really is what beauty is. But David is not seeking 
that kind of beauty. He's not seeking that general beauty that the world that you will see out in creation. He's looking for something more here. He says in 27 verse 4, what he means is in the perception of God, you will experience pleasure, but perceiving God for who he really is should bring you a pleasure that is different, a pleasure that fully satisfies. Why does he say it that way? Well, over the course of the last several weeks, um, we've been learning a lot about who God is, his character, um, his goodness, his holiness, his trustworthiness, his glory. See, beauty, the beauty of God really is not a characteristic alongside all the other characteristics that I just ex explained and that we've been learning about, but it's putting them all together. It encompasses all of them. And when you gaze on his beauty, you are identifying how satisfying all of those characteristics are. And when you acknowledge that and you experience those characteristics when you, get, when you gaze upon his beauty, you realize how the beauty of the world really does not satisfy, and it actually fails us. This week in, um, this is really, this is heartbreaking, and, and this week even brings me to tears as I talk about it, but this week in our, our MC, there was a, a doctor in resident, and he's, he's at Riley, and he's on the pre-adolescent floor, and, uh, and um, as he's, as he's, uh, talking, he was even in tears. And on this pre-adolescent floor, there are um, six females who um, are 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, and they, they have an image crisis. And this image crisis is so real for them, is so devastating for them, that they've chosen to swap. There's this new New overdose tactic where you, you take 30 to 40 Tylenol pills and uh, it does something chemically and, and attempts to kill you. And he was, he was physically broken by that. I'm physically broken by that. Because when you realize it doesn't meet you, your, your desire, this beauty that these these girls want, when they realize it's just, it, it, it doesn't meet what they were created to have, the beauty that they were created to take on, it's fatally disappointing. See, no other beautiful thing in the world can satisfy our human desire that we were created to have. See, God's beauty, it'll do something for us. It'll calm us. It'll recenter us. It will solve for our anxiety. It will relieve us from the turmoil of this world. It reframes our longings. God created in us a desire to seek him in, in, in his glory and his beauty only. We desire beauty, but it's not the beauty that we think that we want. It's beauty David was seeking um, both here in Psalm 27, but also in 1611 where he says to God, your presence is abundant joy. And at your right hand are what? Eternal pleasures. We find complete joy in him. And it's forever satisfying. All right. We want that beauty. We know we want that beauty. That, that defines beauty for us, but there's more. We've got to learn how to find it. And this is super profound. We've got to actually look. Right? We have to look. It's super simple. Um, Tozer, I'm going to use a lot of Tozer in this point, so I'm just going to highlight this book. We're reading this together as a church. 
Uh, A.W. Tozer wrote The Pursuit of God. We had copies of this. I don't know if we have any more copies of this, um, but I, I want you to, um, to read this if you haven't. Chapter 7 is absolutely amazing. Um, it gives you a language and a vocabulary to kind of pull the beauty of God from the abstract to the tangible, and uh, I love it. So read chapter 7 if you, if you want. But he says in his book, Looking is synonymous with believing. We must stop and look at it and believe in its satisfying character. Looking is synonymous with believing. He goes on to say that there's an example of this in the Old Testament. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. You can turn there if you'd like in the Old Testament. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. I'm going to read it. Um, It's the story of the Israelites and the bronze snake. Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. Then the, the people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned, and, speaking, and, and, and by speaking against the Lord and against you, intercede with the Lord so that, we, we, that he will take the snakes away from us. So Moses interceded. On behalf of the people, then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. And when anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. What did they do? They looked. They gazed on the bronze snake that was mounted on a pole and they were saved. Tozer says, looking, looking on the Old Testament serpent is the same thing as believing in the New Testament Christ. He, go, he explains it further. He says, believing then is directing the heart's attention. Believing is directing the heart's attention to Jesus. It's lifting up the mind to behold the Lamb of God and never ceasing that beholding for the rest of our lives. This consistent looking that translates to believing and focusing it primarily on to Jesus. I'll illustrate it this way for me in my life. I, am, I think I may be something like a three on the Enneagram, uh, maybe a combination of something else. I don't know. Um, but I do know that I'm always in my head. I don't know if anyone else is like that out there. I'm always in my head. I'm fairly cerebral. Um, I, I want to accomplish, um, but I also want to be, the, I want, I want to be authentic in, in the creation of my accomplishments. And so it leads to this vicious cycle of constantly being in my head and wondering like, whether I'm good enough at what I'm doing. And, uh, and my wife, my, my, my wife's very different than me, she notices this about me. And she's learned over the course of 12 years now that uh, one of the practices that, we, that she does for me, and sometimes it's out of frustration, totally, because I'm just a jerk and selfish, but oftentimes it's out of, like, she knows what I need, and so she'll grab my face, literally, grab my face and be like, would you just stop and look at me? Would you just stop and look at me? Look at me in the eyes. And what is she, what is she asking of me in that moment? Yes, she wants my attention, and wants me to notice her, but she really wants my heart. 
She really wants to feel me. She wants me to see her beauty, not the surface beauty. She wants me to experience our unity that we know is there and who she is for me. And she does that so that I can be rested, so that I can be calmed down from the chaos in my mind and out there. She, that, that gaze from me to her and from her to me allows me to feel safe, to feel confident, and to feel loved. David did the same thing in verse 3 of chapter 27. He says, though an army deploys against me, I am still confident. First off, when an army is deploying against you, that's pretty serious. They want one thing generally, that's to take what you have and generally eliminate you from it, right, in the form of death. That's pretty serious. But what he does not do, he doesn't say, hey, give me power, give me strength, give me a bigger army. He says, no, can I actually dwell in your house? And can I gaze upon your beauty? That's what he's asking for. He's asking for the power of, of, of God's face and characteristics to calm him down from everything that's going on out there. Jesus does it too in John 5. He says, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. Whatever he sees, looking upon the father is what's going to give him power. Looking upon the father is what's going to give him a guide. David and Jesus did the exact same thing. They're looking on the father as their guide. They've got this, this gaze tunnel that keeps them focused. So that's pretty simple. You got to look, you got to stay focused, you got to consistently do it. Why don't you do it? Right? Why don't we do this consistently? And I'm going to give you two reasons. The first one is sin. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit. Think about it. Um, when you sin, the Bible says when you sin, there's a veil pulled, pulled before your eyes. Right? It legitimately keeps you from seeing, um, the th seeing God. But sin distances you from God. Sin distances you from any relationship, right? Like when, when you're sinning against someone, what happens to the relationship? Distance happens. Why? Because you actually avoid them. Like if you're sinning against someone and you need to confess, you're avoiding them. And I can certainly assure you, if you're in the same room as them, you're avoiding eye contact, and if your wife grabs you in the face and you're sinning against her and you, you, she asks you to look her in the eyes, I can guarantee you, you will not authentically look her in the eyes. Most likely, you will look down. And if you don't confess, my, my ask for you today is that you confess, either today or this week, if you are sinning against God or sinning against someone in this room. Because what happens is, yes, if, if, if you let time intercede, if you let time come in, and that confession is there, but you won't do it, and time goes on, what the physical thing that happens is that person takes a step away every single day. And eventually, even if they are beautiful, you will not be able to, to make it out. You will not be able to recognize their beauty because they will be so far away from you. That distance gap will be so big that you won't even be able to recognize their beauty. So please do that. Number two is self Tozer wrote, so sin and then self, this is another reason why we can't, that, that, that prohibits us from looking. Um, Tozer wrote, we need to get out of our own vision and get God into focus. Sin has twisted our vision inward and made, self, made it self-regarding. Unbelief has put self where God should be and is perilously close to the sin of Lucifer, who said, I will set my throne above God. I will set the throne, my throne above the throne of God. 
when we expect our own beauty to satisfy us, it will let us down. When we put ourselves at the end of this gaze tunnel, um, it is going to let us down. When we put our own beauty, our own desires, um, and, and we think that we can satisfy our, our, our desires that God created for in, and that created and put in us, we are going to be woefully disappointed. My daughter, who is precious, always says this. And I'm sure if you have a daughter in this room, um, or if you, you were a daughter or are a daughter, do you, did you ever hear your parents say, after you asked them this question, Rosie says this all the time, do you think I'm beautiful? Like, of course. It's like every day. I'm like, babe, I think you're absolutely gorgeous. But what is that? Like, why do you keep asking that? Because she has an internal desire to be beautiful, right? And I say, we say this, you say this too. It's not about the outside, but it's about the inside, right? It's about what's on the inside. But what I'm actually saying to her is don't put your throne above his, it's not about your external beauty. In matter of fact, it's not about the virtues that you're going, out, going after on the internal either. It's about looking to him, believing in him, and taking on his beauty. What I'm asking for, for, for her is believe in Jesus, please. Because when you do, you take on his beauty, and that's the most beautiful thing in the entire world. It's much, much beautiful, more beautiful than anything you'll find in creation. And matter of fact, when you believe, I get to look on the fact, you get to look on the beauty of redemption. See, the beauty in creation is awesome, but it pales in comparison to the beauty in redemption. And so that takes me to the last point um, that we have for today, and that is where do you find it? Where do you find this beauty? David found it in the temple in Psalm 27, 4. David says, the place that he is going to see God is where? Is in the temple. Yes, you can find beauty, the beauty of God in creation, but the Bible says throughout that it's intensely found and more apparently found in the temple. So what does that mean? That means this. Um, and we'll learn, we learn about it in Exodus, and we see it in Leviticus as well, that the construction, uh, in the construction of the temple or the tabernacle is its earlier version. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from both Exodus and Leviticus to give you some framework here. Exodus 25, starting in 21, set the mercy seat on top of the ark and put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you in the ark. I will meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim, that are over the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you from there. I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. And then if you go to Leviticus 16, 15, he says, this is all regarding the day of atonement. He says to the high priest, he says that the high priest is to sprinkle the blood against the mercy seat and in front of it. He will make atonement for the most holy place in this way, for all their sins, because of the Israelites' impurities and rebellious acts. See, uh, in the Holy of Holies, there was this Ark of the Covenant. And over the Ark of the Covenant, there was a, a gold slab um, called the Mercy Seat. And one day a year on the Day of Atonement, um, the, the high priest would come and sprinkle blood over it from the chosen sacrifice. And God says, it is at that Mercy Seat, when the sacrifice is made, that I will show up that my glory cloud will come down and it'll, be, it'll hover over the mercy seat 
and I will show up and I will speak to you. It is there that you will see my full glory. It is there that you'll see my full glory. Why? Because that's the altar that you're making the sacrifice at. And because of the sacrifice, I'm going to forgive you. So he's showing up in all of his glory and all of his beauty to do what? To forgive him. And that is beautiful. But thank God it does not end there in the Old Testament. Thank God it doesn't end in numbers where they're looking upon a bronze serpent on a pole. Thank God that we get to, we get to believe in a God that, was, that sent his son to also be on a pole. A pole that was made of wood, a pole that was in the shape of a cross with a perfect man nailed to it. We get to look on redemption. We get to look on redemption to find beauty. In Philippians 2, it says, Jesus existed in the form of God but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself. Lucifer wanted to exalt his own throne, but Jesus was exalted because he gave up his throne. Jesus gave up all the godlike characteristics that made him so beautiful. So much so that Scripture tells us that he, he became unrecognizable. His people didn't even notice him while he was hanging on, the, on that pole, connected to it by nails. He was dismangled. So much so that they were appalled. This God that, went, that gave up his beauty to come, sacrifice for you, his people were appalled by him because of his lack of beauty on the cross. He became unbeautiful so that we can become beautiful. So my little daughter, Rosie, can have true beauty one day if she believes. So that those young girls at Riley can have a never-fading beauty if they would just look upon Jesus on that cross and believe. And one day, and this is, I love Ephesians 5, um, if you want an image of this, if you want to spark your imagination and feel what the image of beauty is and define beauty for yourself, read Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, Jesus says you will be cleansed, or it says because of Jesus, you will be cleansed and presented spotless and holy because of him. You will become the perfect creation that you desire to be right now, the desire that was put in you, the desire to be perfectly beautiful, to be just like Christ is put in you, you want it, and without him you can't attain it, but with him you can, and one day you will be made absolutely perfect in the glory of God because of that. And that is really, really good news. What's also good news is because of Jesus, um, we no longer have to go to the temple to do this. Um, Tozer says, lift your heart and let it rest upon Jesus, and you are, are going to be instantly in what? A sanctuary. You're going to be in a sanctuary when you lift your heart to Jesus, when you believe in Jesus. Anytime that you go with him, go to him, that, san that sanctuary will come around you. Your altar can be created there. And when you show up at that altar, here's what God promises. He says, I will be there. I will shine my light on you and I will forgive you. My beauty, just like it was over the mercy seat in, in, in the Holy of Holies, because of Jesus, you can create your altar anywhere. And, and when you look to him, God will show up, his light will shine, and he will forgive you. 
That is what we find in redemption. We find beauty in creation, but it is far greater in redemption. So, I hope you feel something. I hope I'm enacting maybe a little bit of emotion. I know, I know beauty is a bit arbitrary, um, and it, it can be hard to kind of pull down into the tangible, um, but I hope that as you think about God's beauty, that it is excellent, that it is attractive, and lastly, my prayer for you is that it satisfies. Like it truly satisfies. That's great truth, but I'm not done. Almost done. Not done. I want to give you some tangible, right? I, this, is, this is amazing truth, but I want to give you five practical ways. Sorry, guys, I'm not done yet, but yeah. I'm just, um, I, this may be my cue, but I'm not, not going to leave yet. Um, Five practical ways that, just quickly, that I'm going to run through. And I'm going to give you a person um, that I, I see. I don't know everybody in this room, but I know some. And I'm going to give you some people that, that, that like, do this for me. And when I see them, I'm like, okay, yep. Um, five ways. The first is have an inward habit of beholding God. Have an inward habit of beholding God. Inward, this is you. And habit, meaning consistent. Um, in prayer and in study. Prayer and in study. Find a rhythm where you can create an altar and fall on your face. That's what, it, that's what that, that deep prayer and consistent study, you're falling on your face. The first person that I know, um, the person that comes to mind is a guy by the name of Drew Bogan. Um, uh, he's one of the most disciplined individuals who not only, he does two things, he not only creates the space to go to, to, go to the Lord in prayer and study, but he creates time of gratitude. Beauty is found there. It's found in his, his prayer and his study, but as he gazes, he is overwhelmed with gratitude consistently. And that's a practice that he's been doing in his life. Second, find places where you are clear to perceive. Um, what do I mean by that? I just mean Sabbath, really. Um, I think what Sabbath does for us is it allows us to stop, to forget everything. It's not reading, it's not studying, but it's literally just giving yourself space to encounter God and perceive him and asking, like, shine your face, shine your light on my face. Um, Steve Jager is, is, uh, has really led our church in this way over the last year and is, is giving us a language for practice, is giving us um, a, a category for Sabbath, that, that we're really practicing together as a church, and, and he's really led on that, so I'm grateful to Steve for that. The third thing is through community. Um, the chemistry of community, specifically. What do I mean by chemistry of community? What I mean by chemistry of community is that in relationship which God created you for, you are going to see beautiful things happen. And beautiful things that happen because people... Ideally, if they're followers of Jesus, they act in such a way, they have relational characteristics that create such a beautiful chemistry that it is intoxicating. I think of uh, Brittany and Brooke Horswell, both of them. If you guys know Brittany or Brooke Horswell, if you don't, sorry, you should get to know them. Brittany is in our MC, and I'm not kidding, when she shows up at our MC, it is like it, it, the, the relational chemistry is elevated. It's legitimately elevated because of her joy, her, her, how she encounters people. Everyone feels loved and known. She talks to everyone. It is a light is brought into the room. And that's because of the fact that she loves Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of personality. But her, 
her intensity around joy is so real for everyone in the room that it, it elevates. When she's not there, I'm kind of bummed because I can't figure out how to create that. Um, so it's, it's found in community. You've got to be in community. Fourthly, it's sacrificial love. Watching others lay down their life for others. Obviously, Christ did that. We found beauty in that in redemption. But seeing others like come to the aid of the needs of others is so impactful. You've got to be able to see God's beauty in that. If you can't, well, I don't know. Um, but uh, somebody I, I, I work with and alongside, he's a fellow elder here. His name's Tori Mandrabo. If you don't know him, if you, if you were to know him or I, you should know him, right? He is he's just, he's so incredible. Um, he, he does phenomenal things, and he would give up anything to help you. Like, I know all of you know something like, someone like that uh, in your life, but it is incredible to watch. And, and, it's, and it's super impactful. And when you see him lay down his life to meet the needs, it's, it's like, okay, yep, that's because of Christ. That's because of redemption. That is what beauty actually looks like. He's encompassing all the characteristics that are beauty. And the last one uh, is, and, and this is one you'll hear me talk about almost every, every time in any sermon that I give, and it's forgiveness. Um, yeah, and forgiveness, so when somebody grabs your face, or like I mentioned earlier, and, and you confess to them genuinely, and they're looking into your eyes, and, and their eyes are open, and they say, I forgive you, I don't think, this, again, this is my perspective, I don't think there is any other place that you will see Jesus more clearly than in that moment. I just don't. When they look at you and say you have been forgiven because of the fact that they've been forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus and are being made pure because of the blood of Jesus, and you see that, and because of that, they forgive you in the same way that they've been forgiven, it is like, wow, that is Jesus, and that is only because of Jesus, and that is only because of redemption that that can occur. So, and the person, I oh, can't forget this, it's my wife. Phew, sorry, I almost forgot that one. Samantha Ringo, my wife. Um, the only reason I mention her, one, she is incredible at forgiving. One, she does grab my face a lot. It makes me look at her. Um, but second, I mean, but more importantly, like, I hope all of you can say this about your spouse. Like, when you say, hey, um, forgiveness, who's, who's the person that forgives me? I hope it's your spouse. You know why? One, because I hope you confess regularly. And two, um, this, this marriage is the theater of the gospel. It's the number one place that your kids are going to see the gospel. It's the number one place that other people around you are going to see the gospel. And that is in the form of knowing Jesus and forgiving other people. And so I hope it is your spouse. My wife is incredible at that. Um, I'm finishing up here. I hope that you stop and look at his beauty and, and those encounters um, become more real. So when you stop and you actually think about his beauty this week, I hope they become more real, I hope they become more recognizable, and I hope they become more regular. And the last thing I'll say before I pray is um, I was listening to Shane and Shane this morning. Um, it's, it's called You're Beautiful, but I, I think Phil Wickham wrote it. But Shane and Shane are kind of my secret love. Uh, I don't know if you guys know who Shane and Shane are. They're a little old school. They're a little old school. I get it. Um, your beauty is your beauty, my beauty is my beauty. 
and they're beautiful for me. And I think one day, when I always say to my wife and people, when, when I actually enter heaven one day, I, I legitimately think Shane and Shane uh, are going to be there singing. Like, that is what I want. You can, you can imagine what you want. But I imagine that Shane and Shane are there singing. They're phenomenal. If you don't know their song or Phil Wickham's song, don't listen to the Phil Wickham one. Listen to the Shane and Shane one. You're beautiful. After this service, my other request, apart from confessing, is that you, um, you can get prepared for confession with this song to mentally prep you for that. But listen to your beautiful. What they say, they say some amazing things in this song. But they say, when they, at the end of the song, they say, when I arrive at the pearly gates, when all tears are wiped away and death is no more, I will sing your beautiful. And that is what I think when all of us get to, get to heaven, we won't ask them philosophical questions. We won't ask them about doctrinal differences between, between um, different denominations. What we're going to ask them about or what we're going to experience and what we're going to feel and what we're going to say, if we say anything, is you're beautiful. You will be in such awe of him, you are going to say, all you can say is you're beautiful. And that encompasses everything that he is, his trustworthiness, his glory, his forgiveness, his holiness. It's everything. And that's all you will be able to say. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. We're going to pray. I'm going to read at the very end of chapter 7. Um, in, in A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God, he, he has a prayer. And I, I would recommend that you, you maybe memorize this prayer, but you certainly read it. He says this, and this is, my, this is our prayer. Our Lord, O oh Lord, I have heard a good word inviting me to look away to thee and be satisfied. My heart longs to respond, but sin had clouded my vision till I see thee but dimly. Be pleased to cleanse me in thine own precious blood and make me inwardly pure, so that I may with unveiled eyes gaze upon thee all the days of my earthly pilgrimage. Then shall I be prepared to behold thee in full splendor in the day when thou shalt appear to be glorified in thy saints, and admired in all of them that believe. Amen.